Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. My name is Sophia, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Dean. Hello, everyone. And we have our special guest today, Don Davis. Hi, Don. Hello. So Don Davis comes to us from the Jack Satterley Laboratory in the U of T Earth Science Department, and he works with dating rocks. So Don, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Well, basically for the last 40 years or so, which is when I started uh, at the ROM, when the lab was at the Royal Ontario Museum, I've been doing uranium-led geochronology, mostly on zircon. And uh, in order to date igneous rocks, which helps geologists sort out the uh, geological significance of the maps they make by putting precise ages on on the units. And uh, this reason why we use zircon is because when it crystallizes, it has significant uranium, but almost no lead, virtually no initial lead. So all of the lead that's in it today is produced by the decay of two uranium isotopes into two lead isotopes. And so we can measure, knowing the decay constant, we can measure very precisely uh, the ages of these uh, zircon crystals, which are in granites and rhyolites and different kinds of, or even sediments as detrital grains, and, and, and therefore put a precise age on the geological units. Uh, but in the last few years, I've been uh, expanding the range of application of uranium and lead uh, to low temperature rocks like uh, calcite, for example, which fills you know, access vein filling and, and fossils. I have a graduate student operate, working on, on trying to date fossils as well, because it turns out that the uranium is soluble in groundwater and a little bit of it gets deposited with uh, uh, these minerals. So you can basically date the timing of water flow by dating the, uh, the age of calcite infill in, in cracks. And also whenever bones and teeth which contain, are basically consist of apatite, a calcium phosphate are buried, they undergo diagenetic alteration very quickly. Uh, their organic matter inside them gets uh, eaten up by microbes, which also transfer uranium into them. So they act, can be very good geochronometers, uranium-led geochronometers as well. Uh, it's more of a challenge in that case because these systems are very soft, they're forming at low temperature and so forth, but unlike zircon, which is a very resistant mineral, but you get, get different kinds of information, ages of fluid flow, ages of, of extinct uh, biological organisms. So, so there's a huge range of, of, of application. Uh, there's other uh, isotopic systems you can use as well, but uranium lead has proven to be the most widespread and, and uh, powerful. I think that's a really interesting area of earth sciences because of the deep time uh, questions and and, That's right. and topics that can be covered in this. What what is it that got you interested in this field or mm. or, or what you do? Is it was it like a kind of always wanted to be like a rock dater or? Well, actually, I have not never taken a geological a course on geology in my life. I actually did my undergraduate and my master's in physics at the University of Moncton. And my master's was on dating the um, uh, lifespan of positrons in different materials, which is about 100 picoseconds. And then I had to do a PhD, decided I was going to do that, and was kind of looking around for some field to go into of geophysics. 
and I chose uranium lead, well, dating basically, because in those days, dating was largely the province of physicists who built the mass spectrometers and so forth, and geologists have kind of adopted it later. But uh, it was the closest to physics that I thought. I basically wanted to get out of physics because I thought it was a bit too rarefied. Uh, it was nice to get into something like earth sciences, which is a practical value. It, it's really an application of physics and chemistry, the principles that you learn there. So I started basically at the uh, University of Alberta and, and did my PhD there. And the, my PhD was in dating the half-life of rubidium-87, which is another isotopic system, the rubidium strontium, which is 50 billion years approximately. And uh, that's <laughs> compared to the 50 picoseconds that I was trying, time scales that I was trying to measure for for my master's. But, but anyway, uh, that, worked jump. Okay. <laughs> that worked out okay. And I've since had a grad student who's redone the measurement a few years ago. And it turned out I was off by several percent which meant that all the rubidium strontium ages that were measured and published were, were off by, by the amount that I had. It's not that my data was wrong, it's just the way I had interpreted it was, was somewhat wrong. But it turned out that when I started this project, my supervisor said, well, this will be a really long, boring project, but at least you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that your name will be quoted every time somebody publishes a rubidium strontium age. And as it turned out, the, my, my value for the decay constant was adopted by a committee. And the one that gets the cite, citation that's put in every paper is the people in the committee, Steiger and Jaeger, <laughs> for my value, which was wrong. So I think it's only fair they should get the blame <laughs> for, for it being wrong. <laughs> also worked out all right in the end. <laughs> and now we have the right value <laughs> because as part of my experiment, actually the way the experiment worked, somebody 20 years before had purified some rubidium perchlorate and allowed it to decay in the lab to strontium over 20 years with a 50 billion year half-life. So there wasn't very much strontium there. And you had to make a significant correction for the amount that was originally there and which they hadn't cleaned up properly. So that was why my, my number was wrong. So as part of my PhD, I pure, made an ultra pure uh, batch of, of rubidium perchlorate and my student redid it and got actually exactly the same number that they had before mine, <laughs> which was based upon <laughs> just kind of some very imprecise dating <laughs> of comparison. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, now everybody's happy. <laughs> so, so it's good. Anyway, so, so basically that's how I got into it, very much from the side. Uh, and as I say, I've never really taken a formal geology course. But one of the nice things about being a geochronologist is that you, you get to work with a whole variety of experts in different fields like geochemists and structural geologists and so forth. You go into the field, you collect your samples with other people who are specializing, you know, in whatever problem you are. And so you, you, you get, don't get to be expert in everything, but you get to a very broad exposure to the whole of earth sciences. So it's actually been a very good education because I'm always working with other specialists who need these ages in order to solve their problems. Have you also uh, worked with some archaeologists as well? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, my student, PhD student, Harry Berto, uh, is dating fossils. And one of his sub-projects is working with Michael Chazen in the Department of Anthropology. And he studies caves in South Africa, which contain artifacts of early hominids. About uh, It's actually one of them is like the first earliest evidence of fire at about 750,000 years ago, Homo erectus. And they're trying, one of the frustrations of archeology span is actually knowing the precise age of, of the stratum 
that, that you dig things up from. You would go into these caves and you dig into the sediments and, and document the layering and so forth. And, but it's extremely difficult to measure exactly when, you know, exactly how long ago the artifact that you found uh, was deposited. So Harry Berto discovered that tortoise shell is actually a fantastic reservoir for uranium. When, when tortoises die, their shells basically become diagenetically altered and they have virtually no uranium in them when they're alive, but after they're altered, they can contain many hundreds of PPM uranium, which is extremely high by our standards. So, so we're, we're using the tortoise shell, uranium-led geochronology in order to be able to date these, uh, uh, these levels. But it's quite a challenge. Uh, it's easier to date things that are older and things that are younger. <laughs> so I started and did most of my work in the Precambrian, which is great. But now I'm working, or Harry Berto is working at stuff that's less than a million years old. So, so you have to be really, really careful. And there's also different techniques. Uh, the technique that has been employed for most of my career is called isotope dilution, thermal ionization mass spectrometry. And you take a, a mineral, like a whole grain, like a zircon, you dissolve the whole thing up. And you basically extract the uranium and lead and you mix it with an isotopic standard called a spike. And that gives you the most precise ages you can get. And it's also very laborious and it's the way our lab supports itself. It's self-supporting. So as an example, we charge $1,000 for a reanalysis, which can take days basically. And so that's extremely precise. But in the last few years, uh, people have introduced a new method of analysis called uh, laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. And it only takes seconds to do an analysis by this method. You basically expose your sample to a tiny little laser beam, about several tens of microns across, and that ablates part of the sample. And then it's isotopically analyzed very, very quickly. Uh, so you get results that are much cheaper, but not as precise as you can get with the, with the TIMS method. So what we've really been doing is, is using this um, ICPMS approach, which enables you to canvas many, many samples very, very quickly to see which ones are most favorable. The problem, reason why people couldn't do dating of calcites and low temperature minerals before is that most of them don't have much uranium in them, uh, virtually none, or they have too much common lead, for example, at the beginning. And so if you want to do this by TIMS, it takes hours or days of work to do every sample. And if it doesn't work out, it's too bad. You know, basically you wasted your work. Whereas you can analyze dozens of samples in a day using using this other method, and you can choose the most favorable ones. So it opens up a whole new range of possibilities. So talking about these uh, long uh, time periods, the mm -hmm. challenges of nuclear waste storage are unique and require forethought because they exist on time scales that are outside That's of right. normal human experience and. Lucky for us, Earth scientists deal with this sort of reference frame every day. The challenges are unique, but theoretically they shouldn't be insurmountable. So with this optimism, uh, Sophia, would you like to begin our paper discussion? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, thank you. So today we're going to be talking about a very relevant problem. And two papers about this problem really kind of jumped out at me because they discussed kind of two sides of, a, of the same coin. So one of them was talking about more of the engineering problem and the other one was talking about more of the policy problem. So the first of these comes from the chemical engineering news and the second one comes from the conversation. So we thought that both these articles warranted a read because 
again, nuclear waste storage is both a scientific, engineering, and political feat. So the first article discusses the viability of various nuclear storage solutions. So let's keep in mind that right now there is at least like a 50-year backlog in the amount of nuclear waste stored. What this means is that most of the nuclear waste that's been created for energy or weapons since the 1940s uh, have been kept in these interim storage facilities that are reaching an expiration date. So John, could you tell us what these interim storage facilities are and why they can't be our permanent solution? Well, the basic problem is that uh, they're not stored in a secure manner. They're basically, uh, take for example, the case of the Bruce Nuclear Power Station, which is where I've been doing work with the Nuclear Waste Management Organization to explore the, the hydrochemistry of, of, of fluids underneath it, because one of the suggestions was to was to bury their medium to low level waste directly underneath the, um, uh, the nuclear reactor site about a kilometer down. Uh, so they don't have to transport it. Right now, it's just being stored above ground in a secure building. So if you're worried about it getting into the lake or something, it's the worst possible situation because the only thing that keeps that secure is the fact that you've got uh, security guards wandering around with semi-automatic weapons and things like that to, to make sure that, that they are secure, right? But how long is our society necessarily going to last? And, you know, will we have a... a an episode of societal breakdown, which will make it impossible to really secure these things. Uh, we, we cannot predict, especially given you know uh, human history, how, how stable the situation will be. So the ideal thing is to put it in some kind of permanent geological storage uh, so that we just seal it up and you can forget about it. This stuff has to be sealed up for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So way beyond the timing of our civilization, way beyond the next ice age, in fact, which is anticipated in perhaps another uh, few thousand to 10,000 years. So, so we, have, we need basically a, a non-political, geological, absolute, secure storage uh, environment. The ideal place to put this stuff would be in a salt mine, because salt is very ductile, and if it fractures, it just seals itself, and so everything is completely secure. But I guess we don't have any suitable salt <laughs> deposits uh, that aren't being mined for table salt <laughs> and so forth that people would want to consider. So there are two basic environments that people are working on right now. A number of different countries which use nuclear power, uh, including Canada. And uh, one is to, to bury it within uh, sedimentary deposits, particularly clays, which are very, very low permeability to movement of fluids, and the other is to bury it in granite, in large granite plutons. So one of the suggestions was to bury it, as I said, beneath the um, Bruce nuclear station, and that happens to lie in a carbonate platform. So the upper few hundred meters is limestone, but down below that, in the the, the top part is Devonian. It's, it's about 380 million years or so. Uh, the lower part is Ordovician, goes to the Silurian, then into the Ordovician, and the Ordovician has very thick clay deposits, which are the, the ideal composition, basically, for, for putting these things in. Because, as I say, they have very low um, permeability to fluids. We knew that already. So the object uh, of my research and other people who have been investigating this, uh, there's many other groups, is to basically uh, measure the ages of fluid movement within uh, these formations to see whether or not they've been closed, uh, there's been any recent disturbance. 
So what I found basically was that uh, at the surface and down to about two or 300 meters, you had all kinds of different ages of, of fracturing and placement of calcite vein filling from about 100 million years down to zero. But once you get below that into the Ordovician down about uh, six to 800 meters below ground, uh, the age was basically 420 million years. Okay, now the, now this is in the Ordovician, if I can explain this in some detail. And, and above that, you have the Silurian, which contains all the salt and evaporite deposits, because uh, during the Silurian, about uh, 420 million years ago, there was a, a evaporitic basin, uh, which basically was closed off, all the water evaporated, and that deposited the salt that the Windsor Salt Company mines and, and so on and so forth. Would that be kind of like the Dead Sea if it evaporated? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly the same thing. You leave the Dead Sea to evaporate long enough, it, it produces an evaporite deposit. So the age of the fluid within this Ordovician, and the Ordovician's 450 million years, was actually 420 million years. And the composition of that fluid is actually a hypersaline brine which is indistinguishable from the composition of this evaporitic basin. So those fluids from the, from, that were 420 million years ago above this stuff managed to infiltrate into the, uh, the uh, limestones and the shales down below it. And they became sealed, were subsequently buried by, by younger carbonates. And, and they remained that way uh, since that time. And so we, can, we have evidence there that there's been no disturbance to the fluid except underneath, because underneath is a thin layer of sandstone uh, at the base between the sedimentary platform and the Gren much older Grenvillian uh, rocks underneath. And a sandstone is an aquifer. It can transmit fluids because it has open pore spaces and so forth. So we see that the, we see evidence of hydrothermal fluids that went through there at 320 million years. And we also have up above uh, horizontal fracturing just above the Ordovician within the lower Silurian, which is also 320 million years. And 320 million years was the age of a huge continental collision between Pangaea and Laurentia, which produced a mountain chain as tall as the Himalayas running through Tennessee uh, and the Eastern United States. And that huge mountain chain basically drove because of the hydrostatic head and, and all the plutons underneath the hydrothermal fluids, hundreds of kilometers through the crust and it's exactly the age of 320 million years. So we have evidence that we had a mountain chain that was built up at 320 million years, but it didn't, and there must have been lots of earthquakes and things like that, and it, yet it did not disturb the 420 million years, uh, 430 million year material that was underneath it. And wow. not only that, but at about 150 million years to 110 million years, you had a hot spot, a mantle plume that traveled uh, from the center from Hudson's Bay area, where you have the diamond deposits and things like that. That's the kimberlites from this plume. And it, it traveled southward through the Montreal area, where it produced a bunch of intrusions um, uh, that are kind of interesting. And then finally got into the Atlantic Ocean, where it formed a Emperor Seamount chain, and not, sorry, the, uh, the New England Seamount chain. It's, it's called a New England hotspot. And it produced a bunch of plutons in New Hampshire and so forth. And that thing went right underneath the area of the Bruce Peninsula, and yet it produced, and it produced a whole bunch of fractures at the surface at that time at 100 million years, as I explained in my papers that I sent you. And uh, basically, it did not disturb the, uh, the, 
again, the 430 million year material that's sitting down underneath. Uh, so not only that, but when you drill down, put a drill core through these rocks, you can measure the pore fluid pressure. Okay, and you normally expect that to increase because of the increasing depth. So you, you assume you have a column of, of liquid filling the drill core and you produce a hydrostatic head. Basically the, the weight of the, the fluid above makes it increase as you go with depth. But when you go down with depth and you hit this shale within the Ordovician, the pressure goes down. It has oh, wow. a huge downward, uh, it's amazing. It has this huge downward anomaly, which is actually less than hydrostatic. It's not even lithostatic, it's hydro less than hydrostatic. And so it's like you have a, a negative champagne bottle <laughs> in which the cork is, is holding in something that's of lower pressure than what's outside. So of course, if it's lower pressure in the middle, anything that's outside will want to go in. The stuff inside won't want to go out. But it's it just shows you how incredibly impermeable this rock is, that it can sit there for hundreds of millions of years with this big pressure differential and yet not allow fluid in. So to my mind anyway, from my personal bias point of view, this is pretty good evidence that, that, that they happen to have built the nuclear power plant in exactly the right place where they could bury stuff underneath it. But that whole plan has basically been thrown out now because, <laughs> because the, uh, if you have read recently, there was a decision by the Aboriginal people at the, at, not to have anything to do with it, which is fair enough, you know, I basically don't necessarily blame them. And, and it's pretty scary when you imagine all of this nuclear waste being down there. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's not like it's right beside Lake Huron. People are kind of complaining about it because they're saying, well, you can't put a nuclear waste repository right beside Lake Huron. It might contaminate the Great Lakes. In fact, it's not beside Lake Huron. It's about a kilometer beneath it. And so it has to go right. through all of these rocks to, 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 to basically contaminate the lake water. Where it is right now is right beside the lake. In a perfect world, if the lake wasn't there, then this might be the perfect nuclear storage waste, geological repository for nuclear waste. But not many countries can say that they have this perfect kind of storage. So another solution that some countries have thought of uh, to store nuclear waste is to vitrify it or in other words, store the radioactive waste by embedding it in glass. Yes. So putting it in a material that's immobile and, and essentially fixes the leakage problem. The article that we're, that we're discussing mm -hmm. uh, kind of features this experiment done by a, by a collaboration of several academic and government institutions. And uh, they actually found that when glass and steel are in close contact with one another, uh, the glass actually corrodes faster and releases more radioactive ions. So that, that is another problem and why we potentially have to find this kind of perfect uh, repository. There are several different la layers, let's say, or, or different, um, yeah, barrier layers, I, I could call them. One is the primary containment vessel. Okay, now no prime, such as vitrification or putting them inside a copper cylinder. In, in the mm -hmm. case of NWMO, it's, it's copper cylinders, basically, that they were going to use. But no primary containment vessel can be designed to last more than a few thousand years. They will all mm. decay. And, and glass is a thermodynamically unstable substance. It tends to devitrify. <laughs> so if you've even seen archeological glass bottles, you know, which are a few thousand years old, that you can't see through them anymore because they've started to recrystallize. So, so it's, I will never believe that they could actually get a, a, a medium uh, that is so inert that it could keep this stuff 
immobile by itself uh, for, a million, for a million years, say. So what they do basically is they put it inside these, these canisters, okay, which are designed to be very robust and chemically inert. And then they, they surround them by blocks of bentonite, which is a clay that has the property that if it encounters water, it swells. So it's a self-sealing thing. But the primary long-term repository barrier has got to be geological. Everybody kind of, I think, accepts that. You, mm-hmm. you can't rely upon a, a small scale uh, containment vessel. You have to have a geological environment, which will absolutely assure that you don't get any mobility of this stuff. So that's either got to be, as I say, a, a salt deposit or uh, an impermeable clay deposit at sufficient depth so you won't get fracturing, which means deeper than a few hundred meters, or some highly unfractured uh, plutonic rock. Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of environments that people have been working with. So it's not enough to just put it into this one container. You have no, to... no, no, no. You have to have several layers of protection. Yeah, yeah. And that final layer is putting it in someone's backyard, essentially, and that's why this is causing some of the some of the political issues that yes. the second article talks about. The the second article kind of discusses a specific case study in the UK where the government is offering yearly benefits to a community that will mm-hmm. allow uh, nuclear waste to be stored. And uh, interestingly, the UK has a very diverse geology and several good rock stratigraphies. I'm not actually sure how they measure up to the one that that Mm -hmm. was found by the NWMO, but they have some potential sites. Um, So before you were you were kind of talking about what kind of makes a makes a good uh, geological deposit for nuclear research. What we need to avoid is water getting into these containers, correct? Yes. You need to avoid transport of of the, the material which is still radioactive, which consists of a, a large variety of elements. It's not the uranium that you're worried about. It's these uh, fission products, which basically when, when the uranium atom fissions, it breaks apart unevenly uh, into two different uh, elements, which in many cases will be short-lived, radio, highly radioactive. The shorter lived it is, the more radioactive it is. So, so you've got, it's not, you, you cannot design your barrier. That's one of the problems with trying to design a, a short-term barrier, uh, like glass devitrification or something. You might be able to design it so that it will work with one element, but you have to worry about a whole bunch of different elements, which are radioactive, which, which it will keep immobile. So you want basically, and the, and the only way for them to move is, of course, if they get dissolved in a fluid and, and the fluid takes, transports them. They're not going to move on their own. Uh, so, so you just basically have to have a geological uh, formation, which is basically completely impermeable to, to, to fluid movement. And, and so what, what this case study kind of, kind of ended on is, is the fact that nobody really wants this nuclear waste storage to, to exist in their backyard, despite the monetary incentive. But at the end of the day, no matter how complicated the conversation gets around uh, nuclear waste storage, this is something that we can't put off any longer. And so uh, we kind of wanted to move into the next part of our discussion. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to kind of go back to something that you said previously about how we're going to have to store this for millions of years. But could you kind of explain why a nuclear storage facility has to exist for that long? Because of the radioactive decay constant or half-life? Well, plutonium is one of the worst ones, for example, and that I forget exactly <laughs> the details of all these different things. That's a specialty on its own, but but the plutonium is, of course, highly poisonous and dangerous, and, and it can have a uh, half-life of hundreds of thousands or 
a million years, basically. There's not that much of it produced, uh, but um, most of the radioactivity will decay away uh, very quickly, which is why they store the stuff in swimming pools, the, the fuel rods, once they bring them out. And, and after a year or so, the radioactivity is greatly decreased. But you, to get it down to basically negligible levels takes something like a million years uh, in order to do it. Of course, the longer it sits there, then the safer it becomes. But, uh, but you don't want to take any chances. <laughs> and I'm really impressed by the length of time some underground areas can be uh, kind of locked in place and insulated for. Mm -hmm. in, in our Earth Science Department office, we have a container of water that is dated to be over a billion years, I believe. It's from Barbara Sherwood Lawler, right? <laughs> stuff that she got from the, the Timmins mine. Yeah, it's 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 at least Precambrian, which is about uh, fifteen hundred million years. Yeah, yeah. So that's her sitting down there, sealed. I mean, that that's just amazing to me that that here you've got a, a mine basically, which is a couple of kilometers down, and it's in fractured basalt, and about the most permeable rock you could probably think of is fractured basalt. You know, it's just got open fractures. Stuff can move through, right? It's not like a, a cork, like like the uh, the clay. And yet this stuff seems to have sat there immobile without being displaced or moved, even in that kind of a rock. And I think one of the reasons is because if a, if a fluid is saturated, let's say you have a fluid that's most fluid in groundwater saturated in calcite. Okay, now the solubility of calcite uh, decreases as the pressure decreases. So the reason why a fluid will move through a fracture, say a vertical fracture from deeper to, to shallower, is to get from higher pressure to lower pressure. That's what drives it. But if it's saturated, when it goes from higher pressure to lower pressure, it precipitates calcite because the calcite is less soluble, right? So the, the fracture will automatically seal itself. So thermodynamics, in a way, comes to our aid in terms of immobilizing. And how quickly does it heal? Well, whenever it moves, it's going to start. It's going to start precipitating calcite, so the fracture will get narrower. The calcite will coat the, and then it, it'll gradually seal itself. Basically, sure. I mean, it's it's going to happen very quickly. It's, That's like the Wolverine, you know, like the healing powers or whatever. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. So it's one of the one of the rare cases where nature is on our side. <laughs> but the problem is political, as you say. I mean, it, it's a lar large part of the problem is, is just political and people's. Well, I mean, people's attitude towards radioactivity is is not always that rational. I remember, for example, being visiting the, the Museum of Natural History in the mineralogy section in London, and they had uraninite, okay, as one of the minerals they were displaying. And they had it in a deep lead box with a, the top was propped up by about 45 degrees and was covered with a mirror. So you couldn't look at the sample directly. You had to look at it reflected through the mirror sitting in this lead box. And there was about a half inch glass pane in between you and the sample. And uh, basically, you know, uraninite is radioactive, but it's not all that radioactive. So so, so just that, that glass pane would have probably cut it down to background levels. But, pe but people are so freaked out at the, at the, the you just mentioned radioactivity that, that they demand these kinds of protections. So. So we are always exposed to a certain level of radioactivity from the sun, from radon gas that's floating around in the atmosphere and so forth. Uh, it's just a matter that you don't want it to be above that background level. I think something that I've thought about in terms of 
uh, storing nuclear waste is wouldn't the storage of these containers in these geologic repositories change the chemistry or physics of the plant site? And wouldn't that maybe interfere with some of the, you know, hundred thousand of year planned storage? People's plans are never perfect, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. and uh, that's something that is of great concern to the people who design these things. So there's a large part of the research carried out by the NWMO is on rock mechanics. So they study to the nth degree of detail, the, the stress fields and, and mechanics of, of the rocks in which they're gonna bury these things. And they, they dig exploratory holes. And then they try to study how the presence of the holes themselves distorts the stress field. And it does to some extent, it, it causes fracturing and so forth around the outside, but it's, it's relatively local. I mean, if you have it down so that it, it has to go a kilometer you know, in, in some direction in order to be able to contaminate the environment, then you're not going to basically perturb that beyond, say, a few scale lengths or whatever the, the width of the, of the shaft that you've, you've sunk. But yeah, all of these things are of great concern. And, and, and I was really impressed, you know, being part of this. They used to have a, well, they still do have a one-day seminar every year in which all the people are doing research projects for them present their results and just the scope of the amount of research that they've they've funded has given us a much better idea uh, of how these rocks behave i kind of want to uh, kind of change gears here and ask you i i watched an episode of cosmos this is one of the one of the newer ones with neil degrasse tyson and they talked about uh, claire patterson and his efforts to to date the earth using uh, zircon crystals and the lead contamination. What he found was there was huge background lead contamination yes, from the indeed. use of, yes. of leaded gasoline. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in my online course in, in uranium and geochronology, I basically highlight <laughs> Claire Patterson because he's a, a lead hero kind of, kind of thing. He was the first guy to date the age of the earth. Before that, we really didn't have any clear idea of how old it was, except it was more than a couple of billion years old. So what he did was basically uh, measure the lead isotopic composition uh, in sediments and so forth, and then in meteorites. And he got, even though he had the wrong decay constants at the time, this was back in 1955, he got almost exactly the right answer. But the first guy who actually did zircon dating was George Tilton. They, they were both at the University of Chicago in, in the mid 50s and, and people had uh, perfected uh, mass spectrometry and so forth. And so they started to apply it to these geological problems. But his Claire Patterson's real claim to fame was, as you say, to recognize the danger of lead in the environment because lead was used as an anti-NOC compound in gasoline, tetraethyl lead at that time. And so uh, there was massive amounts of lead being spewed into the environment from, from uh, motor vehicles. And uh, when he discovered this, he basically was blacklisted by the uh, uh, oil companies <laughs> and, mm. and underwent a, a hard time until it finally became recognized how important and how devastating, you know, lead, lead poisoning is to the growth of kids, especially. And it's also been used in paint before at that time. But it, so as a result of those efforts, it's no longer used in gasoline or in paint in most cases. It's, it's a major contaminant, basically. Lead is extreme, was extremely low in the environment in pre-Anthropocene times, but the presence of uh, industry and so forth has massively increased it. So in fact, in our experimental method, the way the, the dating method that most people still use in our lab is 
uh, isotope dilution, in which you're basically trying to dissolve a single microgram size of zircon, grain of zircon, which might contain a few tens of picograms of lead and uranium that you're trying to measure. And a single grain of dust, if it falls into your sample by accident, will contain more lead than your sample of a different isotopic composition. So we have to work in an ultra clean environment. And we've basically been using the same clean air boxes, the same technology since I started 40 years ago. 40 years ago, our average blank was 10 or 20 picograms. Now it's 0.1 to 0.2 picograms. And so it's gone down basically two orders of magnitude. And we haven't done anything different. That's in 40 years. The only thing that's different is the amount of lead in the environment. So if we get a grain of dust in our sample today, <laughs> it contains 100 times less lead than it did 40 years ago, which is very good for you guys <laughs> who are breathing it all the time. Part of the Claire Patterson story as well is is his opposition by, uh, yes. there was another chemist who was, who was a big uh, proponent of leaded gasoline. I, I don't remember his name, but it's one of the first times that I, I believe that the authority of science was used to deceive the public Mm -hmm. and to further their profits. Mm -hmm. And that kind of makes me sympathize with um, the First Nations people who re who reject the storage facility because there is a history, unfortunately, Absolutely. of scientists being not true to yep. the scientific process and being unbiased. Okay, I always trust science, but I don't trust scientists because... Scientists basically can be bought, you know, they're human beings, they're like anybody yeah. else, you know, and they're subject to the same prejudices and the same influences and so forth. So, so you all often get these debates in science between, well, you know, there are some scientists who for a long time and probably still do support, deny global warming and support the oil industry. Because it's it's it makes them feel good to do so. <laughs> it's very good for their for their bank account. So so they, that's human nature. This is the problem we have to deal with. It's not a technical problem. It's a human problem. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the first case <laughs> where where science has been used <laughs> not to advance the truth. Uh, certainly, there are many cases where authority has been used it, but but that's certainly a good example. It, it's. But some cases we've been able to overcome that. Another example is the ozone uh, problem with, with fluorohydrocarbons, which were done away with remarkably quickly when it turned out that uh, it was a major problem opening up a hole in the ozone layer. There was little pushback on that. And yet other things like global warming generally and, and the widespread use of, of hydrocarbon burning have been much more difficult to address. When it comes to um, nuclear power, it seems like there's kind of environmentalists and, and scientists that yes. have like on, on both sides of, of the issue, because on one hand, you have the scientists, environmentalists who are saying, yes, like nuclear is a great way to generate power because, I mean, per, let's say, ounce of uranium, you get a lot more energy than you would out of, say, for example, like a, like the, the, this, the equivalent of, of, for example, like solar energy. Uh, but on the other hand, you also have environmentalists who are saying, well, hey, if we actually, you know, uh, start producing all of this nuclear waste, then this backlog that mm -hmm. we already have, that's going to create even more problems. And we're just not, I mean, it just seems like there's, again, two sides of the same coin. Uh, it's a big problem with trust. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's an understandable problem. Like <laughs> with the Aboriginals, I don't blame them <laughs> for not, not trusting uh, what they're told necessarily. You know, I remember just before Three Mile Island accident happened, reading this National Geographic article 
about how engineers had calculated there was a one in 100 billion chance that something would go wrong with a nuclear plant. But that ignores the possibility of human incompetence. Have you ever seen Chernobyl? Yeah, like the, the remake of it? On it kind of illustrates to you what can happen very, very easily. Or take Fukushima, you know, basically, why did they have to build their nuclear power plants on the Pacific side of Japan? It's a narrow country. Why not put it on the Sea of Japan side? Mm-hmm. In which mm-hmm. case, you would have had no possibility of, of, of a tsunami. It's, mm-hmm. it's a combination of incompetence and arrogance that they figured they didn't have to worry about that because they could, you know, design it all out and, then, and design the plant to take care of any conceivable tsunami, which obviously didn't happen. So, so this is the problem with just trusting people. On the other hand, the effects of global warming due to high levels of CO2 in the atmosphere cannot be underestimated. You could make an argument, I've heard the argument made by others, that you could have one Chernobyl a year and it would be less devastating than what global warming is going to do basically, to the human population. This, this week in the New York Times, there was an article on Bangladesh, which is basically about two meters above sea level. You know? and, mm-hmm. and as soon as the oceans start to rise, that entire country of hundreds of millions of people will be underwater. It's not going to affect us so much in the developed world, but it's the undeveloped people that are bearing the brunt uh, of this problem, especially sea level rise, which will cause wreck other havoc and devastation on, on, you know, wipe out every coastal city, basically. Uh, You you can't conceive of what what this is going to do. Uh, So we have yet to even approach, you know, (laughs) the the devastating effects of of rising temperatures. So if you can generate your power uh, through nuclear energy, which is virtually carbon free, then it's a good argument, basically, to do so. And, and the nuclear waste disposal problem, as I've tried to explain, is solvable, provided we can solve the, the political problems that go along with it. So I occasionally uh, look at this website called electricitymap.org, and mm-hmm. on it, you can see the, how green the energy grids are around the world. Mm-hmm. And Ontario is frequently on there, actually. If the wind is blowing just right and also the sun <laughs> is shining. We actually drop uh, drop down really, really low in CO2 mm-hmm. emissions and become the greenest energy grid in the entire world. And that's largely thanks to nuclear energy that we have. 44, I'm looking right now, and it says mm-hmm. 44.08% of our electricity is coming from nuclear power at this moment. I mean, it seems like it's it could potentially be a very important tool for combating climate change. Yes, actually, the, the most important tool would be conservation and just cutting back <laughs> and not using so much power, you know, because we use way more than we actually have to. I mean, we are encouraged to gorge ourselves basically on energy. We can basically uh, use electric cars instead of you know, gasoline-powered cars, and uh, you don't have to have every light on in your house and all of this sort of stuff. You can design houses better to be more, more energy efficient. And, and the price of solar energy is dropping all the time. That's the other thing: is the economics of the um, uh, alternative energy uh, sources is improving. But there is this huge weight or whatever ballast that we have in our society towards oil uh, and towards basically just doing the things we've always done. COVID has helped to shock us out of our economic paradigm of constant growth a little bit. And, mm. and, 
and might incite us to think a little bit more seriously about how we're going to handle the future. And I think some of the recent, I mean, drops, for example, in the oil price have also kind of encouraged a... Yes, although it wasn't for that reason. <laughs> it's the South. Yes, but, but at least a paradigm shift, you know, yes, some people are thinking, right. hey, this... Well, no, that's, that's the worst thing. Actually, the best thing would be a rise in oil prices. The only time when people take electric cars seriously is when gasoline becomes more expensive. Oh, interesting. Cheaper, okay. You've got to go out and buy Hummers and, and, and more SUVs, right? That's that, that's the word. <laughs> Almighty dollar. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So one of the things I really appreciate about the earth sciences um, that I think makes it unique amongst a lot of the other sciences, it's very interdisciplinary. Yes. Uh, you have all these different sciences coming into it, but also these all these different aspects of life. You have uh, industry and government. You have to worry about uh, financial markets, you have to work with the government and in public policy, public perception. To what extent have you collaborated with these other disciplines, these other aspects? Um, and what were the challenges in bridging these gaps? Well, as I mentioned before, uh, one of the advantages of being a geochronologist is that you're always collaborating with other people within, broadly speaking, geology, geological field. So you, you get a broad perspective on that. I haven't really done too much uh, collaboration with uh, investment bankers and, and mining developers and people like that. I, that's one of the reasons I, I stayed in the lab is, is to avoid that kind of thing. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, earth science is really the best field you can be in, in terms of getting a broad exposure to all sorts of human activities and, and the most stimulating fields. So, so sure, there's all sorts of societal um, aspects to it as well. Uh, I did a whole bunch of dating for uh, the Hong Kong Geological Survey, which was actually the Department of Geomechanics, because if you've ever been to Hong Kong, it's not flat. <laughs> it's extremely irregular, and therefore engineering uh, geology is, is, is an extremely important field. But uh, they felt it necessary to have ages on all their rocks, and they were they had lots of zircon in them, so that was a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's the best field to be in for sure. Uh, it's 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 the app. I remember once, well, many years ago, uh, some people were complaining that geology shouldn't be taught in high school because it takes away time from the basic sciences and the important ones like mathematics and physics and chemistry. But in fact, geology is the application of mathematics and physics and chemistry, right? I mean, it's, it's the carbon cycle and all of this sort of stuff and the tectonics. It's all the way in which, in which these, these basic sciences are applied. And, and so it's the best way to really learn them. And even biology, biology is, is a field of geology. Charles Darwin was taken along on the voyage to the Beagle as a geologist, not a biologist. Was a geologist. And, and, and I became, actually, I was, you know, I spent the first couple of decades of my career with my head stuck in the Precambrian, just dating these rocks for geologists and so forth. And then I had to work on designing a gallery, the Inco Gallery of Earth Sciences, which unfortunately only lasted a few years. But I did an enormous amount of reading and I came to realize the importance of earth system science, that everything is interrelated. That's the thing that really geology teaches you. Everything is interrelated. Uh, so biology is really just an aspect of geology. Uh, geological evolution has influenced biological evolution and vice versa. The whole composition of the atmosphere and so for the weathering processes, it's all biologically mediated. 
So, so it's, it's everything you can possibly think of practically, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. involved in it. So it's really the best field to be in. And uh, luckily for incoming students, there's actually a course that's called exactly Earth, Earth System Processes in our department. So there you go. <laughs> we should call it natural philosophy like they did back in the 1850s. <laughs> so Don, you've been in the field for 40 years. If you weren't an Earth scientist, however, who would you be? <laughs> kind of I'd be me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I would be me. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'd write poetry or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like that's interesting. That's what I wanted to do when I was very small. <laughs> that's cool. Well, like I said, I went into physics at the beginning because I've always liked to think. You know, I basically, um, I, I just can't let problems go. If there's something I don't understand, <laughs> then I have to, I have to, to stick to it basically until until I figured it out and and that's actually the great thing about this pandemic is that for the first few months before we started to open up a couple of weeks ago i had all the time in the world <laughs> to to write papers and think about things and solve problems and, and it was just great so not maybe not so much for other people but it was for me <laughs> well we caught you at a good time then yes i have one more question for you as yeah. well mm-hmm. if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you whether it's earth science related or or anything uh, what would it be? What is dark matter? Oh. <laughs> Very good mm-hmm. one. That's a good I think answer. I know what the answer is, but I have to find time to write it up. <laughs> That's the problem, and I'm too busy. <laughs> Can you write it in the form of a poem? Yeah, I could. <laughs> I, could <try> that. <laughs> I think I'd, I'd really like to read that. <laughs> okay, I'll work on it. <laughs> Perfect. Before we actually go, we like to have a little quote at the end, and today it's going to come from Dean. So, I found this quote really interesting. It's from Albert Einstein, and he said, Nuclear power is one hell of a way to boil water. (laughs) Good. That's right. (laughs) We thought it was a nice little little fun quote to end end our episode with, and so thank you so much, Don, for being on our podcast. We had a lot of fun talking to you today. We learned a lot. Okay, and I enjoyed myself too. So I hope I run into you too <laughs> eventually later. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. We actually haven't met. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. We're going to grad studies and... <laughs> until today. All right. Uh, thank you to our listeners as well. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 